few weeks ago, I got an email with a podcast pitch. It was from a wonderful woman called Sarah Stevens, who wants to get involved with women of my generation. She runs a project called The Beautiful Project, and works to empower women and to help them gain more confidence on an everyday basis. She has a TEDx talk where she talks about the importance of feeling comfortable in your body to be able to take up space. I encourage you all to watch it on YouTube, and there's a link in the show notes to it. We talk about all of this in today's episode, alongside body positivity versus body neutrality and fat phobia. Sarah, who's a mother herself, also gives advice on how to raise daughters to stop apologising for ourselves and to feel confident. My name is Fanny Beckman and this is Women of My Generation. Obviously, this is a bit of a new situation for me because we're actually going to record um, this episode via Skype. Um, normally, I meet my person face to face, but this is a bit of an unusual situation because uh, today's guest, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Um, you emailed me a couple of weeks ago and the reason why we can't sit next to each other is because you're actually in the States and I'm in London. Um, but yeah, like I said, you emailed me a couple of weeks ago and said that you wanted to be guest in my podcast because we have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And when I read your pitch and I read about you, I realised that, yeah, we have so much in common and I'm really excited to have you on board. I'm really excited you said yes. I'm very grateful. I yes. think it'll be a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, but first of all, could you just please introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. I'm Sarah Stevens. I'm the founder of The Beautiful Project. And that's beautiful with two L's because it's not so much about beauty as it is about an invitation to be full. Uh, I live in the States. I live on the border of Iowa and Illinois. So in the Midwest, um, it's very, very cold here and I'm very, very tired of winter. (laughs) I'm ready for the sun again. Uh, that is the work that lights me up the work with the beautiful Mm. project. I also co-own a coaching and consulting business with my wife and we do Mm. uh, a whole lot of leadership development and personal coaching and all sorts of things, um, around that area. But, but the message of the project, the work of the project, that is the work uh, that I really know that I'm made to do. So I'm always kind of trying to figure out that balance of, being an entrepreneur and you still have to live and, uh, eat. I have, we have three teenage children, so they also require food and money all the time. Uh, so I'm definitely working in between those two worlds often, but, but the project is the main thing that brings me to this conversation with you today. 
Mm, and I didn't know that um, why you spelled beautiful with two L's. I was actually wondering about that, yeah. but now you explained to me, and that's that's amazing. That's so clever. Thank you. <laughs> um, but in your email, you mentioned that it was a photography project that helped you mm-hmm. get more comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and what project was that exactly? It's called the Adipositivity Project. Um, it's by mm-hmm. a photographer who lives in the States, pretty sure she's on the East coast. Her name is Substantia Jones. And she, um, the Adipositivity project is really sort of what the title implies. It is, it is a project that is intended to, uh, desensitize people to images of people in fat bodies. Um, the idea being that we are less negatively reactive to, um, images that, that are familiar to us or that we react negatively to images that are unfamiliar is probably a clearer way to say that. So, mm-hmm. um, she takes photos of people in fat bodies and, um, her work is very fat positive and intentionally so. So I discovered the Adipositivity project at the end of 20, uh, must've been 2017 as I was really doing some work around my own body image. And it was probably the first time that I had really laid eyes on images of people in bodies that were not the, the quote norm unquote, I guess, or the, the beauty standard. And these people looked happy. They looked mm. free. And, and that was not a familiar experience to me, uh, to see people just living in their bodies. And it gave me hope, honestly, that things could be maybe different than I was accustomed to, to feeling in my own body at that point. So the Adipositivity Project is it's exceptional work. She continues to do it. She's got, a, she's got galleries and prints and all of those things. But um, the work she's doing for fat positivity is so important. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great project. Uh, but I'm also intrigued to hear more about um, the fact that you said that negative reaction mm-hmm. um what are your thoughts on positive reaction then? Because I feel like the aim is uh, for it to be normalized and not having a reaction at all, like we have with slim bodies in commercial and advertisement. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you think that um, we have achieved that now, or, or, mm. or is it still no. some way to go? No. <laughs> oh gosh, no. I wish we are. I, you mm. know, sometimes when I'm doing this work, I can start to feel like we'll never get there. You know, it's, it's a little mm. overwhelming to unravel this mm. constant dominant, dominant narrative that we have to be smaller in order to fit. We need to shrink in order to fit. Mm. And my hope is that, um, that what we know about the human psyche is that if we are exposed, I mean, I really think her, her photography pro- project is really rooted in good psychological science because um, it is it is clear through repetition that if we are desensitized to an image that we do, I, at this point, a positive reaction would be lovely, but a neutral reaction would also work for me. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. need other people to feel positively about the body that I'm in, but I do mm-hmm. need to have a neutral reaction so that I can live and work and be in the world without oppression. Um So that really, I I don't think we're there. I think we have a very long way to go. Uh, But I I think that kind of work, that kind of exposure, that idea that representation of all body sizes and types and all sorts of um, 
images of beauty and what that can mean, our exposure to that is that's how we turn the tide. But it's a very slow, slow tide to turn, as I'm sure you can relate to. Mm. Yeah, definitely agree with all of that. And um, especially like... I've talked about this before in my podcast, the like little feminist bubble we live in mm-hmm. where we think that everyone is so aware and everyone's um, aware of the importance of diversity. But then you realise when you go outside this bubble mm-hmm. that that isn't the case at all. Um, so again, showing different bodies in um, ads that's in the tube and and um not just in very niche audience is very very important mm-hmm. um but you mentioned as well that you have struggled with your body image previously mm-hmm. and uh you have a TEDx talk where you talk very openly about this journey that you've made and obviously I encourage everyone to have a look at um on YouTube and see for themselves um and I will put some a link in the show notes as well thank you um but could you please go into detail how this journey has been for you sure one of the questions I have asked some of the women I work with and I think it's a really effective place for us to start a conversation about body is, uh, I ask women often, when was the first time you realized your body was different from other bodies? Almost Mm. every woman has a story and I've yet to have one that was good. So, um, that's kind of where I like to start my own story. And the first time I remember realizing that was when I was nine. And for Christmas that year, my, uh, well, at the time it was Santa, I thought it was Santa Claus who delivered, um, workout equipment like ankle weights and a gym mat and some VCR tapes to exercise while my brothers who were younger got video games and, um, music and all sorts of things that you would traditionally identify as Christmas presents. So I remember that very clearly. It was the first time I went, Oh, there's something different about me. And whatever Mm -hmm. the difference is, is not good. It means I need to work instead of play. And, uh, that sort of, and I've actually talked to my mom about that since then. And she, Oh, how was that conversation? Well, it was an important conversation. At first Mm. she was pretty defensive because parents try their best. I mean, I believe that's true. And, and ultimately my mom is, she has the same stories about her body that we're all handed about our bodies. And so she was really parenting from that place in some way, but also she shared with me that for Christmas that year, that was all I asked for which tells me a lot about where my nine-year-old brain was about what women do Mm. with their bodies. Mm. So fast forward a couple of years, by the time I was 11, Weight Watchers was like everywhere uh, by the time I was 11. So I went to Weight Watchers with my mom when I was 11 years old. And I often will talk about that structure and how if you want to make a lifelong customer of a person, have a kid come in and get a gold star when they lose weight. Um, because that's really how that functions. And so... And how old were you then? I was 11. That is so early. Yeah. it's. I've gotten so used to telling the story that I think at times I don't plug into the emotion behind it. But if I think mm. about it, like I said, I'm a mom. Um, the idea of taking my 11-year-old to a place that taught her how to count calories is so tragic to me. I mean, just honestly, there's a lot, I think I still have a lot of grief around, 
around that space. I think about the 11 year old version of me when I should have been playing. Um, I was always Mm -hmm. really athletic, more of sort of a tomboy. You know, I wanted to be outside and playing and the idea of me like on Saturday morning, faithfully going to go get weighed in is just, uh, it's tragic. And it also explains Mm -hmm. a lot about the future story because that was how I understood myself. My role, my goal in life was to be thinner really by the time I was 11. So fast forward a few years, by the time I was 14, I was living with really a truly full blown eating disorder. Um, Mm. the challenge I had is that I, uh, I have, I lived with what today would be diagnosed as atypical anorexia. So I never got so small that it required intervention. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't restricting calories. I mean, I was frequently losing consciousness because of how few calories I was eating. But I never weighed less than 120 pounds. It's like my body is just determined to survive. Um, Mm. I think that's so important that you say that because I think a lot of people can relate to the fact that they feel like, oh, I'm not ill enough to uh, to seek help. And that's, again, one of the symptoms of anorexia I think like it's very common that you're a perfectionist and um you know comparing yourself and not being good enough at being anorexic almost yes I was Um, I that was in my head that I was failing at being anorexic in spite of an extraordinarily like a dangerously low amount of calories a day I couldn't seem to get that right in my head that was how that worked in my head which is also so sad to me today sitting here at 42 um, so I was a three sport athlete and a straight A student goes back to that perfectionism thing. Uh, mm. another reason why there just didn't need to be any intervention. I was still performing for everyone else. But did people in your surrounding notice that you were ill or did you manage to hide it? I am a, re- I'm really good at hiding things. I'm much less good at it today. I hit, ha- I hit it very well. And also there were things going on in my family at the time. There was a lot of uh, tension between my parents who later divorced, but my mom was often consumed. Uh, my dad is a recovering alcoholic today, but he wasn't then. And so I was able to hide it pretty easily because I wasn't causing any trouble in the family system. Right. So I was still a straight A student and a three sport athlete but I was very ill for many years. Um, mm. and, and they had other things in their heads to think exactly. about. Exactly. Yep. Mm. And that can, you know, I today, again, so much has changed for me as I age. Today I can have a pretty significant amount of compassion for where my mom was at that time in her life. And I also wish it had been different for me. Because if I look at the patterns that were established in those years, in those early years, uh, they are patterns that it took me many decades to unravel, many, many decades to unravel, and a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of resources and things that I could have been putting all of that time and money and resource towards something that made me better or the world better. And really, it was just decades of healing, which I suppose is good and good in and of itself. Um, but yeah, I was, I managed to go pretty undetected with that. But also you mentioned that, uh, your mom probably got her negative body image from her mom as well. And it goes on in generations. It does. Um, and how do you tackle that now as a parent yourself? 
Well, I have uh, this journey for me of really stopping the cycle, which started a few years ago, but I, that translated into how I parented um, my, and, and how, how I showed up in my family system in general. So there are some sort of superficial things that are true in our family, things like um, we use fat as a descriptor and not a not a negative word, right? And I've taught mm-hmm. them how I've I've I'm constantly teaching at showing them where there is fat phobia and teaching them how to talk about bodies, about their own bodies. We frequently use the line, all bodies are good bodies in our house. So I've been very intentional about the language I select, but then I also model behavior. My daughter, my daughter is 18. She just turned 18 and Mm -hmm. she's had her formative teenage years. She's watched me move into this space of being an advocate for myself, my relationship with my body, my own autonomy about that. She's been with me at the doctor when I refused to be weighed because I didn't need to be. And she's watched what that looks like for a woman to say, Um, we're going to have a weight neutral conversation about my health. So I've been able to demonstrate some behaviors as I've healed, I guess is probably the easiest way for me to describe that. And I try to do that out loud vocally in their eyesight so that they can try to absorb some of that because they're still situated in a culture that is telling them, um, that is still telling all three of them to be different than they are because that's everywhere. Right. Yeah, it is. But also I think it's really important, um, to just consider how you talk about your own body, yes. uh, both as a parent, but also among your friends or other um, women in particular. Because if you talk negatively about your body, people in your surroundings will start looking at themselves yep. and compare them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the most important thing uh, to think about as well. Yeah, we talk a lot about body kindness Um and about, I, I really mm. try to put them in relationship with themselves, help them understand that they're in a relationship with themselves, with their body. Uh, and that is, you know, it's intricate work over time, like all of parenting. I wish there was this moment where I went, oh, they get it. <laughs> I'm not sure. We're still trying. They're teenagers. Yeah, yeah. I, we'll figure mm. it out. <clears throat> I'll know probably in the next decade if any of it stuck. But for now, I'm just trying to live into that kind of body kindness myself yeah yeah and you seem to do it very well Mm. thank you um but with your um project um you focus on encouraging people to take up space Mm -hmm. and to stop apologizing for our existence Um, do you believe that this is linked to being happy with your physical appearance you know i do My lived experience tells me that as soon as I um, stopped the obsession with shrinking my body, Mm. I, I, it wasn't a light switch. I didn't wake up the next day and go, gosh, I really love my belly. That is not what happened. I've had to do work to lay hands on my belly and to, and to let some of the judgment move through me. Um, So I can say that I've had to work at it. And I don't know that if I'm happier about my appearance, but I can tell you that my appearance matters less to me. That's Mm. probably the best way for me to get at that. I see all of who I am now. You know, I used to, I think, I think this is a familiar reality for women. 
women will often, I'll watch women like constantly look at our own reflection, but we never stay long enough to really see ourselves. So there's this like glance and then there's judgment and then we look away. And I've learned how to look long enough to see more than just the size of my belly. I don't know if I'm ever going to look at my belly and go, I think that's beautiful. I don't know if that's possible or even really relevant to me. Um, what I wanted from this was freedom. I wanted to be able to just live my life. And, mm. and the more that I give myself permission to take up space, both, both in my physical reality and then also with my voice and my ambition and all of who I am, the way that I present in the world physically is just not as relevant. Mm. Does that make and sense? That's- yeah, it definitely does. And I think that's a big discussion at the moment. It's like body positivity versus body neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, that it can be quite tough to set up a goal to love your body or love every single part of your body. Because um, I think I speak for most of us when I say that we do have bad days. Um, and it's often linked to our mental health. If we're struggling with different things in our life, we tend to... Um, bring it inwards and um, start hating different body parts for some reason mm-hmm. um, so again just thinking that oh, everything will be great as just the day when I love my body and the way I look and people are starting to question that more and uh, talk about body confidence and body neutrality, yeah. uh, which is, like you said, to just exist and be in the moment without even thinking about what you look like. Yeah. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Yep, and I think we've turned body positivity into another thing we can fail at. I just... Mm. And it... It's remarkable. And I don't mean we did it to ourselves. I I don't know who did it. I don't really care. I know that I'm tired of it. I'm tired of exactly that. Like you said, this idea that I'm supposed to wake up every day and feel good about my body. Well, I'm still saturated by a culture that tells me that the way that I appear will never be good enough. And it's not just because I am in a fat body. That's true. I work with lots of women now regardless of body size and shape, women that I would have thought are totally comfortable in their skin, despise themselves. And, and it, that tells me, that reminds me that the problem is not, it's not me. It's not you. It's a system that's, that's working Mm -hmm. here. So I think it's unrealistic to set ourselves up to believe I'm going to be able to create this mental space every single day that is countercultural to the system. Of course not. We're humans. We're in it, right? But what I am working toward is freedom and neutrality so that I get to be in my body and also be more than the way that it looks. And I think that kind of freedom, I think that appeals to people when they hear it. And I think it is available to us if we just shift the lens a little bit. Because body positivity, the way that we are, the way that it's kind of trending, you know, um, mm. I, I actually don't think it's what it was intended to be in the beginning. If you look at the body positive movement, 
it started as it started about equal rights and and uh, systems of oppression um, for yeah. LGBTQ fat women. It was it was mm. fat positivity then, but we've it's kind of gotten uh, you know it's we've grabbed it and we've commodified it and we've done some things to it. So let's get back to the to the center of it, which was just let me exist. I just want to exist. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, it's really worrying when words like that kind of loses their value. Um, and I I think it's the same with the word feminist at the moment as well. Oh, yeah. uh, it's become fashionable, so people just say it without really knowing what it means yeah. and what the feminist movement is about. So it's really it's really good that you um, that you said that and that you are here to educate people. Um, but also, I want to hear more about your everyday work with uh, women and their body image. So, mm-hmm. could you just share a bit? Sure. So, the project, really, I'm doing that through the project. And so, mm-hmm. the beautiful project is a storytelling collective inviting women back to their bodies. In the mm-hmm. beginning, at the I founded it in 2018. And at the beginning, I really just had intended to use it as a space to write. I love to write. Uh, And I wanted to write from this lens of being a woman in a fat body, trying to heal my relationship with my body. But it became clear to me very early on that I wasn't just looking for my voice in this sea of other voices, but I wanted to draw together this, this phrase came to me that I wanted a chorus of courage. I was thinking actually about my own daughter at the time. And if I wanted her to have a different lived experience, it was going to have to include more than just my voice to drown out this other message. And so I started to think about ways that I could engage other women in rewriting this story about taking up space. So from there, I launched the podcast. The first season, I just invited women to the microphone and said, tell me about the first time you realized your body was different from other bodies. And in that experience, it became so clear to me that women, we are walking around with this brilliant lens on the world and it just requires somebody to sit down and ask us. And in that first season, these women cracked open and told me the most exceptional, beautiful things and painful. A lot of it was painful, but there was a lot of healing. Um, so the podcast has seasons. The first season was that the second season was the survivor season where I talked to women who have survived something in their bodies. That was a very intense season. We talked a lot about sexual assault Um, the connection between women feeling safe to be embodied and survivors of sexual assault there, that was a pretty constant thread. So I'm in season three now. Um, it's called the mamas and the makers, and it's about women as a creative force, the way we use our bodies to create in the world, whether it's people or podcasts or art or photos, we, we make change. That's what we do with our bodies. So that's the first intersection is the podcast. I also host live events where we sit and we really just have open conversation uh, around themes that have to do with embodiment. And I'm also launching this year, I'm going to launch some guest galleries. So women who want to do, uh, women photographers who want to do a body positive project. I'm open Mm -hmm. to interpretation about what that means. I don't want to shrink any woman's creativity ever. Um, And so the project can just be this true storytelling collective because I am confident that from 
that we invite each other to use our voices and our, and our bodies in the world this way, I have to believe we can create something different together. And so I'm trying to gather that together. Yeah, definitely. We live in a very interesting time where women's voices are finally being listened to Mm -hmm. and we have a lot to say. I mean, we've always had a lot to say, but now it's more, it's more out there. And with social media, we have our own platforms and we can create our own story like you do. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I, wanted to go back a bit when you talked about your second series in the podcast mm. um, where you talked a lot about sexual harassment and assault because mm-hmm. um, a few episodes ago I, I had Ace um, as a guest and she she said it so beautifully that she could see the beauty in other people's bodies mm. um, but not in her own even though um, her body was similar to the one that she looked at mm. and her theory was that it was to do with memories and different traumas that mm. we'd experienced which is completely in line what you said now about like if you've experienced sexual assault then that is linked to your body and then you feel Mm-hmm. Um, distance yeah for the sake of safety you end up feeling distance I think mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a ton of emerging research I think we're headed this way where we're talking more about being in our bodies we're talking more about the link between trauma and why we can't seem to stay in our bodies um, mm-hmm. I think there's just so much more to come on that but I can tell you in my lived experience I'm also a survivor of sexual assault and if I look at the way that that impacted, um, my sense of safety in my body. Uh, I, it explains everything about why there is just this natural instinct for me to dissociate from it. Um, which is also tragic to me because now sitting in this space that I'm in today, I can look back and see all of the ways my body enabled me to survive. If I look back at the times that I survived through living with an eating disorder in high school and this body that metabolically slowed down enough so that I didn't die. I mean, I see that now. I actually, on good days, I can put my hands on my belly and realize the weight that I carry is in some ways this protective um, response. Uh, And so I can feel this sort of relationship that is one of protection. But I can say for sure that we have to be aware that most of us are walking around with some trauma in our bodies and that that Mm. is absolutely impacting the way we understand ourselves and to be gentle with that, with ourselves and with each other, be gentle with that, with each other, because it's likely you're not alone, you know? Mm. No, definitely not. But that was such a big realization for me. And because that's again, something that we might not even realize Mm -hmm. if we walk around and feel distant to our bodies or feel hate towards it. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes down to it, it's it's nothing to do with our appearance, but it's actually something else that underlies it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to talk to you about um, the fact that a lot of people argue that men in general are more confident than women Mm. and that this is to do um, with their upbringing and, again, that men are taught to take up more space than women are. Um, And 
what are your thoughts on how we can raise young girls to stop apologising for themselves mm. and take up more space? That is such a good question. It draws me back to this TED Talk I watched. It was by Reshma Saujini. She's the founder of Girls Who Code. It's a great, mm-hmm. it's a great 12-minute TED Talk. And she says something in that TED Talk. She tells a whole story, which I won't retell. Um, but you should go watch it. It's really good. And she says at the end of the story, she says, the problem is we teach our boys to be brave and our girls to be perfect. And that really resonated with me. And so I think that you take up space more naturally when you understand that you're not expected to be perfect in the space you're taking up. So I, um, and maybe I've parented counter to that, maybe too much. I mean, I, I don't know. Like I said, parenting really is an experiment uh, in so many ways. But, but I make it very clear, particularly to my daughter, that she has permission to fail. Hmm. Because do it, you have one daughter and two sons? I do, yeah. So my daughter is 18, hmm. and then I have a 16-year-old son and a 14-year-old son. Okay. Um, and my sons are being raised by two women. So, you know, we have a lot of conversations in our house that are very female dominant, but I don't know that that's bad. I have two white sons. I mean, they're in the, the, they're in a position of power in their lives. And so I talk to them frequently about how to use that power well. And, um, yeah. So this idea of if I can parent at anything, I, if I want my daughter to stop apologizing, she has to stop believing she's done something wrong. And in order to do that, I have to make space for her to fail because she's going to, she's a human. I'm going to, you're going to, it is a natural experience of being an embodied human person. And so, um, that is kind of where I land on that. I think, how do we teach it? We make plenty of space for failure and then, and then we teach to resilience you know, we teach to getting back up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's so true. And it reminds me of a podcast I listened to called um, How to Fail. Have mm. you? I haven't heard, heard it. it? No. 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 So that's exactly uh, it. Like to be able to succeed, we have to learn how to fail and what we can do, um, what we can take from our mistakes, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, that's exactly mm. it. Yeah. Mm. but yeah I I definitely agree um that women are taught to be perfect um so again just remind them or ourselves as well that um we are allowed to take up space is so so important Mm -hmm. and I think all your work is is amazing and I bet you make a big difference for all the women that you work with thank you I think the same of your work I think it's really important I'm very, Mm. it's always, um, a real consolation to me when I find other people doing similar work. I just, I'm, I mean it when I say we have to bring together a chorus of voices. It cannot be one or two or 10. The tide is too loud against it. So I just, it's a real joy to know there are other people, uh, across, Mm. you know, uh, the pond doing other yeah, yeah. doing similar things that is so important to me so thank you for your work mm. oh, thank you and also you actively look for other podcasters do. who do mm-hmm. stuff like this so are, are there a lot of us out there um I want to say yes but you know it's a we're gaining <laughs> momentum I do you you said something earlier that's so true women's we're 
we're starting, people are starting to listen. And so mm-hmm. I think we are probably at the beginning of a real upswing that direction, but mm-hmm. I like being on the front end of a movement. It's fun. It means you get to help create it. So there mm-hmm. are, but there, there are enough of us that we're starting to make noise. And I love that. Yep. I want us to keep yeah. making noise. Let's keep making noise. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Well, I feel very hopeful now and I feel like we are in the middle of a revolution, um, which is, yeah, thank God for that. Yes. It's about time. Yes, overdue, <laughs> overdue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for, for being you. guest in my podcast and reaching out to me. Yeah, you bet. It's, Thanks for yeah. saying yes. Mm, it's been amazing. Thank you. Thanks, thanks.